0: Hello, and welcome to the Professional Motor Mechanic podcast. I'm your host, Kieran Nee, editor of Professional Motor Mechanic magazine. The October issue of PMM is available at your local Factor. So why not pop down there and pick up a free copy? This month, we have some great technical articles from KYB, Bosch, Motel, and Maha, plus many more. In this episode, we're looking at access to vehicle data. There is a video on YouTube of Tony Bastable, remember him? Guiding the TV viewing public through an engine valve change. This might seem crazy to listeners today in 2022, but in 1974 it was just assumed that you would at least have the potential to fix your own car. Now even professional repairers are struggling for the right to repair cars. What went wrong? Well, a lot of it comes down to car manufacturers denying access to the data required to fix their cars. You see, they would rather drivers take their cars to franchise dealers than independent workshops. So what can we do to keep a
1: level playing field? This episode, you'll hear from Neil Patamore from UK AFCAR. The one thing that we absolutely want the government to recognise is the ability to continue to offer consumer choice. From Tom Henman editor of Professional Motor Factor magazine. After a prolonged
2: gap, it was great to be back out at the Mesa, even if, somewhat unsurprisingly, the usual hustle and bustle of the trade fair was tempered slightly from previous visits.
0: You and I are going to spend a bit of time with this episode's headline sponsor, Cortico, a leading supplier of components to independent garages. This interview with commercial director, Steve Jarnett, offers some really interesting insights on the future of cabin filtration. Okay. Let's go and chat to Steve. Could you start by telling us a little about the role that cabin air filters play in a modern vehicle?
3: In a modern vehicle, well, in any vehicle, I guess, since 1990, you'd have a cabin filter in your car, which is going to effectively stop all of the nasty stuff that you're breathing in so if you think about all of the filters that you would have in relation to your engine and that's to make sure that your engine performs perfectly one of the things people forget about is as you're driving down the road you're breathing in a lot of potentially harmful gases brake dust
0: could you tell listeners about the dangers then of not having the air cabin air filters properly and regularly serviced
3: Yeah, what tends to happen is, uh, you know, they'll get clogged up with all of those, you know, dust and pollen and everything else. I mean, that's what everyone used to call them back in the day, a pollen filter, which is, uh, you know, pollen's actually quite a big particle. It's diesel particulates, which are like one of the scariest things. So you need to get those serviced. And when we used to do a lot of work with garages back in the day about, you know, how to promote cabin filter replacement is we used to say, take the old filter out because, you know, when someone sees they've got half a pigeon stuck to it, they're very reluctant to put that back in because they realize that they're breathing all of that stuff in so that that's a kind of like a, a great selling point uh, to be able to focus on you know show them the old one because that would mean more to somebody than let's say showing them an old oil filter
0: so Micronair is already a well known brand then within the oe sector but could you tell our aftermarket listeners a little bit about the brand
3: they did the first cabin filter as Micronair back in 1988 in collaboration with mercedes and it was kind of an evolution where The market was heading towards better types of cabin comfort. At that time, it was kind of like a retrofit. An afterthought kind of thing. And and that actually put us at a disadvantage because they always used to put them in the most terrible places on the car, which made them difficult to change. And certainly in my early days of selling cabin filters, people would say, oh, they're a nightmare to change. It's like that they're really not anymore because they became just part of the filter package and they came very easy to change like the E-Class. So the evolution started from Mercedes and then more and more as cabin comfort became important for vehicle manufacturers, it just became a, a standard part on people's cars.
0: And this was in the days before knowledge of NOx emissions and things like that?
3: Yeah, whether the vehicle manufacturers were considering any uh, safety or health risk associated with that, um, you know, back in the, in the day, you know, it was called a pollen filter, and you know, one of the big, well, the number one question that we always used to get asked was, what's the difference between a standard filter and a carbon activated filter? And the difference is, it just stops smells. So you've got exactly the same filter, but the carbon activator has got this layer of carbon. It's the same thing that you get in, uh, you'll see them in cooker hoods, and yeah, it's and it's burnt coconut shell. So they put this layer of burnt coconut shell over the top and it's super absorbent and that's what takes away the smells which is great you know smelly catalytic converters you're driving past a farm or anything like that so it's a great upgrade i know there's still
0: technological developments coming through on the filter side
3: Yes, yeah, so now everyone's talking about the uh, antibacterial filters. So um, we have the Micronair Blue, which uses fruit acid technology to kill bacteria. And uh, you know, bearing in mind the COVID pandemic, you know that's a very relevant topic to be thinking about. Also, if people have got uh, respiratory illnesses, we used to partner with Asthma UK because again, the reaction that you can get from these different gases and particles uh, can be very dangerous if you suffer from you know asthma or another respiratory illness
0: we all know that electrification is, is just around the corner and ICE vehicles um, will no longer be being sold in the UK from 2030. We, we, I mean, with the oncoming electrification then of of, um, of mobility in general, is there really a future for filters left within the car?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is what Uh, represents a huge opportunity for cabin filters because as we get this ongoing electrification it's the only filter that you're going to be changing so from a service perspective this represent big big chance for the aftermarket you know to continue to be growing and servicing those vehicles i think a lot of people are asking themselves right now well you know what does that future look like for us in the aftermarket and that's where these filters are and they're getting more and more complex and we're very fortunate that we've got those relationships with the oe manufacturers you know like the work that we're even doing now with tesla so that means that we're well placed to be able to service those market to, or service those vehicles first to market because we already did the development work with them at a very um, a very early stage and like take tesla as an example we had to like keep up with their evolution as well because they've got a philosophy of uh, this fail fast and you now we started off kind of baby steps with them but now that's rapidly gaining you know once you get in cadence with them then it's amazing how many other opportunities that uh, you know you start with a cabin filter and before you know it, you're talking about several other products as well so i think it's a massively interesting and optimistic outlook for us
0: on that front are other ev manufacturers following suit
3: yeah absolutely i mean they all want to have cabin comfort let's say compared to you know there's no engine to service there so there's still going to be cars on the road you know that are you know diesel petrol brake dust lorries you know all of that stuff is going to be emitting various different particles and gases even though you're in an electric car but you're still at risk of breathing that stuff in as i said before you're driving down the road the tunnel effect that you get from those gases and your air conditioning it's literally sucking the gas in from out. Outside and then blowing it into the inside of your car.
0: Thank you, Cortico. Good stuff. Now, Freya, what news do you have for us this episode?
4: Thanks, Kieran, and hello to all our listeners. I'm Freya, PMM's deputy editor and the news editor for the Professional Motor Mechanic podcast. And here's the news There has been a huge rise in the amount of MOT testers disqualified since the start of the pandemic. This is according to a Freedom of Information request by BookMyGarage.com. The request revealed that almost 700 MOT testers have been stripped of their status, 50% more than the previous two years. This usually occurs following improper or careless practices during the test procedure or for issuing fraudulent certificates. This information comes as the government mulls over the prospect of biannual MOT testing. The price of catalytic converters, among many other components, could be set to rise thanks to higher interest rates and inflation. According to BM Catalysts, the current economic situation is adding further uncertainty to the price of the precious metals used in the manufacture of catalytic converters. Rhodium, for example, is a key component of catalytic converters. It is also one of the rarest elements on earth and highly volatile price-wise. Furthermore, These prices are said to be responsible for the increase in catalytic converter thefts. Stuart James from the IGA has urged the government to go further in its measures to protect garages after the details of the Energy Bill Relief Scheme were revealed. The scheme will fix business energy prices at £211 per megawatt hour for electricity and £75 for gas. However, The IGA head warns this might not be enough for independent garages, if not extended beyond the initial six-month period. James argued that garages provide vital, affordable services that keep the UK's vehicles roadworthy and road-safe. He continued, We are already seeing reports that motorists are avoiding MOTs and car repairs to save money amidst the rising cost of living. If garages are forced to raise their prices significantly to cover their energy costs in the near future, this could seriously impact road safety throughout the UK. This has been corroborated by Mark Field, the chief executive of the IAAF, who argues that energy support packages and tax cuts will mean nothing to independent aftermarket businesses unless sector-specific legislation such as current MOT frequency and motor vehicle block exemption regulations are maintained and strengthened. And lastly, we'd like to invite all our listeners to attend Mechanics, the trade show for aftermarket professionals. Set to take place on Tuesday the 8th and Wednesday the 9th of November, the free show is returning to Sandown Park in Surrey. This year features a bumper seminar program and lots of new products to explore. Exhibitors include VARTA, Continental, and Pico, among others. We are delighted to announce that industry experts Hayley Pels and Tom Denton will be hosting the seminar stand. On day one, you can find out all about the future of mobility and the challenges at cybersecurity and the shift towards EVs pose to the aftermarket. We will hear from the IGA's Steve Coles, Matt Cleveley from Cleveley Motors, and Neil Patamore from UK AFCAR, among many others. Day two, we'll look at what workshops can do to promote the industry to the next generation, featuring Gavin White from Autotech and the IMI's Chris Cotterill, as well as many more industry specialists. Both days will be summed up with a panel discussion at the end, so you can't miss it. Register your free attendance at www.mechanics.info. And that's the news from PMM this month. And now back to Kieran.
0: Before I take you to our main feature, I just want to share a quick message with you from iSIN. Do you know what brake calipers are installed on the new Mercedes-AMG SL, which started selling on March 23rd of 2022? They come from ADVIX, a member of the Japanese iSIN Group. iSIN is part of the Toyota Group and is also the world's fifth largest OEM automotive parts supplier. Their Europe aftermarket division provides a full range of braking, steering and suspension cooling, engine, drivetrain, fluids, and performance automotive replacement parts. And those brake calipers on the new Merck AMG SL are sold under the ADVIX name. ADVIX stands for Advanced Intelligent Chassis Systems. From now on, ADVIX covers the entire iSin braking program, including brake pads, brake calipers, brake cylinders, brake boosters, and wheel cylinders for European, American, and Asian vehicles. The Advix line is a complex range where all key components are designed and manufactured by Icin. Advix is one of the few providers with the full knowledge on how to make fully functional, complex and high performance brake systems from scratch. No reverse engineering needed because it's their own design. The Advix calipers and hydraulics are made on OE lines, are of OE quality and are 10% cheaper than any available premium brand in the European aftermarket. Not to mention that some items, like brake boosters, are only available from Advix in the aftermarket. The Advix XB brake pad series has been specifically created to provide exceptional structural durability with improved stopping power for everyday use and under any road conditions. It guarantees strong and consistent braking thanks to top production quality and improved pad durability. Advix has also introduced the brake rotors for the European market. These are fully coated ECE R90 compliant OE quality brake rotors. A wide range of OE quality brake calipers, opposed and floating, for Japanese vehicles are also available for garages. These newly built aftermarket units are assembled at the same lines as the genuine OE products. Icin has a good coverage of the European applications, with over 60% in brake discs and over 90% in brake pads. Interested? Contact one of the distributors listed on the iSynAftermarket.eu website and use the store locator by clicking on the UK on the map of Europe. The products are available on stock and are deliverable on short notice. Recently, I took a trip down to Tunbridge in Kent to visit UK AFCARS Neil Patamore. Neil has fought tirelessly in the UK and in Europe to defend the rights of the independent aftermarket to access vehicle data. We met up at a local workshop, Neville Fix-It, and sat down with proprietor Neville Smith to discuss how access to vehicle data was being restricted by the manufacturers and how this is affecting independent workshops. Okay guys, can you uh, introduce yourselves? We'll start with you, Neil.
1: My name is Neil Pattermore, I've worked pretty much all my professional life in the aftermarket and for the last 10 years I've been the technical director of two of the leading aftermarket associations in Brussels, who were in turn part of a wider alliance in Brussels called AFCAR, which is the Alliance for the Freedom of Car Repair. That's been in uh, in Brussels since 1997. But following Brexit, I've come back here into the UK to work for UK AFCAR, also as Technical Director, to talk to the UK government following Brexit about what automotive aftermarket legislation needs to be considered, addressed and updated
5: here in the UK. OK, thank you, Neil. And now on to you, Neville. My name's Neville Smith. I'm the owner and director of Neville Fixit Independent Repairs Garage in Tunbridge and Kent started the business in 1985 so quite a few years now and through that time we've expanded our technologies and building to now house eight hoists there's 10 staff in all here and we've now become one of the leading repair independents in this area okay Neil what are some of the regulations that we need to look out for some
0: of the um, the buzzwords if you will on the horizon at the moment
1: Okay, I'll keep it simple because I know that uh, it's easy to, uh, uh, to muddle people's uh, understanding of this. But in simple terms, there are two main pillars of legislation. One is competition law, which is done through motor vehicle block exemption. So the original block exemption was for vehicle manufacturers and their networks to be exempt from competition because they had protected trading areas. But for the aftermarket it's particularly important because it brings in the non-discrimination between authorised repairers, main dealers as most people would know them, and independent repair workshops. The other pillar is the vehicle type approval which contains the repair and maintenance and it's a different legal basis, um, partly because it's more technical in the type approval one is competition law which sets the principles the other is the technical requirements which allows you to see more detail of how they should be complied with. So if I understand that correctly Neil when when we're talking about type approval we're not just
0: talking about whether a part um, matches the quality requirements of of the vehicle manufacturer but we're also talking about whether the aftermarket is able to repair that part or able to replace or work with that part is that
1: right yeah absolutely and both of those pieces of legislation support what you've just described Kieran in two similar but different ways Um, in motor vehicle block exemption there are what's known as hardcore restrictions which means the vehicle manufacturer has to make available captive parts okay thank you Neil
5: And Neville, so how much of what
0: Neil's just been talking about were you aware of before today?
5: Well, I was aware that the block exemption is coming to a close and that we need to do something with regards to extending that to keep us on a level playing field, really, so that we have access to the data and the information and, of course, the parts that are required to repair the job. Yeah, Why is that important, then, for you on, on a daily basis? Well, without that information, we wouldn't have a business. You know, primarily, we need the information to enable us to effect an effective, efficient repair and put the vehicle back to the same as it was when it left the factory. And for that, we need the, the dealer data um, and obviously the supply of uh, OE quality or OE parts to ensure that the vehicle is compliant. Do you feel, I know that this is something that's talked a lot about in the, in the tech sector especially,
0: but do you feel that you should have a certain right to repair? vehicles and a right to access
5: them? Yes I do, you know it's a a competition market and you know generally I feel that if the dealers were to exclude us from the repair they would not manage to repair the cars on the road. Already we're finding that some vehicles customers are getting upset because they can't get logged in with a dealer for weeks on end, in some cases months, Um, and they have a right to choose who repairs their car and when it's repaired they shouldn't be strung out and held to ransom by a dealer. So you're already facing a lot of vehicles then that are already difficult to access? Yes, not not too many at the moment, but it's getting more and more difficult with secure gateways and things like that that some of the manufacturers are introducing.
0: Neil, do you think that the, the the situation that Neville just described, will that be continuing or will it be worsening, do you think, if the vehicle manufacturers get that way in any case?
1: Um, well, th- there's two things. Um, I would totally endorse what Neville has just said. Um, it's ultimately the aftermarket exists to provide choices to consumers. And that if they choose to use us, we have a business. That's in competition with the vehicle manufacturers. So they are now becoming able through vehicle technology and things like the security gateway and the wider cyber security that is coming imminently. Neil
0: mentioned something interesting there, cybersecurity. It's what lies at the heart of this debate. Basically, now that systems like ADAS play such an important role in vehicles, something which is only set to grow with the rise of autonomous driving, vehicle manufacturers are arguing there is a need to ensure that repairers are certified.
1: The cost of the certificates, the cost of coding that has a certificate, the cost of a replacement part that needs to be integrated into a vehicle, can increasingly come with a cost. And those costs can make the um, aftermarket parts, which typically are cheaper, suddenly become more expensive. If indeed you're allowed to fit an aftermarket part. So there are a whole variety of things developing which will make it um, more difficult and perhaps more expensive. Um, And fundamentally, I don't have a problem with competition, but it shouldn't be at the behest of one of the parties to have a controlling interest. Neil,
0: as I understand, the aim from the vehicle manufacturers wouldn't be to replace the aftermarket, but to combine the aftermarket alongside the dealerships, or, or, or could you explain a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I think that the longer term evolution uh, that perhaps the vehicle manufacturers have in mind is moving towards what's known as mass, which is Mobility as a Service, M-A-A-S. And the vehicle manufacturers, with the introduction of their new agency models in terms of the vehicle sales, selling direct, you can see that their business models are changing. Ultimately, they still need those vehicles repaired. But if the judgment is not on the price of the vehicle, but is on the price of renting that vehicle, whether that's hourly, daily, monthly, or maybe a three or four year contract, if they then include the uh, the repair and maintenance, then they're going to put pressure on independent operators to use their own parts, but also to start being more, how can I put this politely, uh, competitive on the hourly rates. So it's less the
0: aftermarket is, is under threat, it's the independence of the aftermarket.
1: Yes, and I think from my role, the one thing that we absolutely want the government to recognize is the ability to continue to offer consumer choice and if you just do the same as a vehicle manufacturer does you are replicating you're not competing and that's a fundamental point so innovation and entrepreneur attitudes and and entrepreneurial business models that have been core of some of the very good things that have come from the aftermarket over decades
5: a lot to think about there yeah from my point of view a lot of this legislation goes over my head. I don't mind admitting that. Um, I understand the right to repair. I understand European law, uh, what it meant to us block exemption. But that's where we rely on people like Neil. You know, give me a spanner and a screwdriver and a laptop, I'm happy. But the rest of it, we just need to be able to repair customers' cars and put them back on the road in an equivalent way that they come out of the factory. And yes, as Neil says, we need that right. We need that ability to repair. Here,
0: Neville talks about the need for some kind of regulation within the car repair sector. It's something I hear a lot. The key thing to remember, Neil argues, is that whether someone is qualified to work on a given vehicle should not be decided by the vehicle manufacturer, but by an independent legislative body, such as the SERMI scheme.
5: I honestly believe, as, as I know others will, that this should be regulated. We should have to subscribe to a register of some description to give us a license or a right to repair cars legally. And the customer then has the right to choose, right, they are a registered garage. We know we're going to get it done right. We get audited uh, and things like that. And, you know, that is the correct way. There are too many people out there attempting to do the job and not doing it. And believe me, I see them come through our door.
0: Well, that's an an interesting point, Neville. I'm sure many of our listeners um, will agree with you. I think one thing uh, that kind of maybe ties in with Neil is the security concerns that vehicle manufacturers profess to have about having the aftermarket working on their cars and certain aspects of the car in particular. So could you tell us a little bit about the security gateway and, and, and what ramifications that has on the aftermarket?
1: Um, Indeed, Kieran, you're right. uh, One of the threats, uh, if I use that word, in the sense of the control that cybersecurity will give to the vehicle manufacturer, and equally, the vehicle manufacturer has a responsibility to ensure that his product, the car, remains safe and and secure. That's part of of a legislative requirement, the, the General Safety Regulation, as it's known. But in doing that, It's too easy actually to define what's known as the rights and roles to a certificate because that certificate controls what you can do. And to access that certificate you will need to register with the vehicle manufacturer and so on. But there is equally an increasing pressure, I guess is the right word, to have more control over the type approval of replacement parts, the registration of independent workshops and the technicians, But that should be done under a legislative framework, as it's called. That exists in legislation already, but it's yet to be implemented. The CIRMI scheme, which some of the listeners may have heard of, is secure repair and maintenance information. But what it brings is a single registration process for a workshop and the technicians in that workshop. Their details are assessed and then held at a central trust center, typically in, in Europe, um, but also for the UK, that would be a requirement. And then when you access uh, the vehicle manufacturer's website to get the secure information you need, there is a, a handshake uh, electronically between the, the website and the tool connected to the car to make sure that both ends um, verify that they are the correct people. The, The workshop and the technician as well as the vehicle manufacturer and then the vehicle manufacturer releases the information to reprogram the car or the key or whatever it may be.
0: Well Neville I hear you nodding in agreement, if you can hear someone nod. Yeah
5: I mean yeah if you can hear someone nod. Yeah because I mean from my perspective until I spoke to Neil earlier the secure gateway to me was a way of the manufacturers blocking people from getting access to the softwares etc with a a £20 eBay tool that people go and buy and and do that, and they all think that they can fix it when they get this tool. So it was quite a surprise to me to find that we've got that access, we have subscribed to the databases that are required to give us the access to the manufacturers that have done that, but to find that they can suddenly in the background start switching off elements of that is a bit of an eye-opener. Yeah, I didn't know that, so... You know, we we wouldn't want that happening because we need full access. I mean, from a repair point of view, we don't need access to everything that's in that computer, but we certainly need access to the the repair data and fault codes and everything that attaches to that.
0: Are you are still fond of the idea, the essential idea, I guess, of blocking out the unqualified or those who aren't fit. They don't have the knowledge base to yeah. to repair them.
5: Absolutely, 100%. Yes, I am. I've seen some dangerous vehicles come through our door that people have attempted to repair. They've all, Everyone you talk to, they've all got a mate. Their best mate is Google. Um, they go out and they find all this and try and repair, and it doesn't fix it. It comes in the door, and I've seen some horrendous photos. As I say, I'm on forums with good techs up and down the country. People like me that have invested heavily in their training, heavily in equipment to try and do a great job for their customers and the aftermarket and to find that to use my terminology of a thread in a shed somewhere has managed to completely wreck it and that customer has spent a fair amount of money getting it fixed and all they've done is thrown parts at it, used it like a part start wall. We had one in the other day that literally they'd spent a lot of money on it, came in here an hour later my tech had fixed it and sent it out the door, it took an hour to fix it and I think it was about 150 quid for the part but that's the difference. We know the systems, we work with the systems, as do these other guys up and down the country and obviously your listeners. So, yeah, I think we need that investment and that training safeguarded. And the secure gateways is one way of doing that to keep people out and drive the cars into a qualified repairer. But... Not if the manufacturers are going to start looking to knock lines of data out here and there so we can't see it or can't get at it. That's not competitive.
0: So, Neville, when you were an apprentice those years ago,
5: ago,
0: which I believe was when you first met Neil,
5: No, 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 (laughs) not correct. I've known Neil for many, many, many years. I can't remember how many Neil, I don't want to think. It's well over two decades. Yeah, it's uh, over 20 years we've known each other. Okay. But no, I I started my apprenticeship when I was 16, 15, uh, 15, and uh, 16, 16 when I left school, and I'm now 68. So I've been at the job. There was a break in the middle, but I've always worked on cars. And for me at the moment, and always add, I, I don't wake up in the morning and regret going into work. I absolutely love the job. I love the technology. I love what we do. And every day is different, particularly in this building, because we see a great many cars with different mates. So nothing's the same. I'm not on the tools as much as I should be or could be or want to be. But a lot of the deep diagnostic stuff, when we get stuck, then I take it over. Because if it takes a week to fix it, it's not affecting the throughput of the workshop, but I still love the job. And to have someone turn around and say, you can't do that job that I've worked at for the last 30 odd years or more, you know, since I've owned the business 30 odd years. Yeah, it's a bit of a kick in the uh, the teeth. Now, I know
0: one word answers aren't normally your uh, forte, but if I could ask you, (laughs) are you feeling hopeful for the independent aftermarket going forward?
1: The short answer is yes. And I won't expand on that, but there's a lot of work to be done to do that. But the government's aware of that. I'm, along with some other colleagues, working hard to do that. But
5: yes. Brilliant. Excellent. And you, Neville, are you hopeful for the next generation going forward? Yeah, I hope so. You know, we've got people like Neil looking after our interests and steering the ship, shall we say. Then yes, hopefully.
0: Okay. There was a lot to process there. And I would be lying if I told you I completely understood everything Neil spoke about that day. But Neil's point about retaining the competitiveness of the independent aftermarket is a key one. I think as well one of the most important takeaways from our chat, however, was Neville's passion for his job, which really came through in that last section. A lot has changed since 1974 when Tony Bastable could help you change your own engine valves on TV. everyone in the industry should keep a close eye on the work that Neil and his colleagues in UK AFCAR are doing to make sure industry professionals can continue to repair cars, even if the days of DIY engine maintenance may be behind us. You can catch Neil at Mechanics next month, where he'll be answering any questions you have about the future of the aftermarket. Okay, now I'm going to pass you over to my colleague and friend for the second installment of the Professional Motor Factor segment. Over to you, Tom.
2: Hi everyone, it's great to be back on the podcast. Thankfully, my debut merited a second invitation and hopefully this will be a segment that you look forward to every month. Since we last spoke, I've been out in Germany for Auto of Frankfurt, the first in four years due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I joined Kieran and other colleagues for the Automotive Festival and thankfully, unlike some of our journalist friends, we didn't lose our luggage between Heathrow and Frankfurt. After a prolonged gap, it was great to be back out at the Messe. Even if, somewhat unsurprisingly, the usual hustle and bustle of the trade fair was tempered slightly from previous visits. That said, the organisers believe the event is heading in the right direction, and hopefully, in two years' time, it'll be even stronger. I was invited to several press conferences and stands, where exhibitors had clearly gone to great lengths and were meticulous in their planning. There were some great product launches and business announcements, one of which was that Autolite is making return to the aftermarket. On the topic of suppliers, I asked the owners of a two-branch motor factor recently about what confidence suppliers have in distributors, especially ones that have just broken cover. Steve Jones and Tony Griffiths, who only celebrated Autospares Wells' one year anniversary in February, believes past experience that having a bit about you is important. There are suppliers out there that are willing to the give you help. I think you've got to have a bit about you as well, though, and you've got to have a good business plan, which we did. We had a business plan in place. A few of the suppliers asked actually to see that and they were impressed. They understood it. They knew where we were coming from and what
6: we'd done before. They did go a long way. Like I said, I don't think anybody can do it, but I think the right person can go and do it independently, comfortably. Just on the back of that as well, at that time, people thought we were crazy because we were right in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. And as a lot of people are what we believed in, if we could just get over that pandemic period, I know we've gone back in with, but if we could have got over that, then we could have got stronger and stronger into a more you know realistic world. And I think that's happening now. But as you said about cash of myself and Steve, I think the most disappointing thing was that We thought there may be help out there from the government to start up grants or loans, but to be honest, we didn't have anything off anybody. Every time we seemed to want to go, uh, there was always an obstacle. So we quickly thought, well, we can't rely on that. So we decided we had to do it ourselves.
2: Following their own cash investment, I asked if they had made their money back.
6: What you need to think of is uh, we're only
2: 12 months in. Obviously, the first branch, a lot of suppliers gave us 12 months, 18 months to pay for stock. We then opened the second branch, so they're now giving us the same sort of terms or it's the same suppliers in some cases, giving us them. So the new plan for myself and Tony, obviously, and Lee, who's now, he's not with us today, but uh, Lee's now a big part of the company as well. He, he actually owns 25% of the business. Myself and Tony own the other 37.5% each. We haven't currently made the money back, but things look good while making that money
6: back. Luckily enough, the cash flow in the business is very good. So that helps us. We've just come through probably what was my, because I do the debts and Steve does the purchasing, what I thought would be the most difficult time through September and into January, we've cleared all the debts and we've got obviously we've got enough to go again. So we're kind of, hopefully we're open over the sticky period and we're ready to go again and we are going again.
2: I hope you enjoyed my chat with Steve and Tony, and I look forward to bringing you another interview very soon.
0: Kieran, back to you. Well, that's all from episode five of the Professional Motor Mechanic podcast. If you haven't listened to previous episodes, I suggest you do, and please do leave a review. It will help other technicians find us. Thanks to all our guests, Steve Jarnett, Neil Patmore, Neville Smith, Steve Jones, and Tony Griffiths. Thank you as always to the PMM team, Freya, Tom, and our producer, Kirsty. You'll find links to all the companies we mentioned in our show notes so please do go there for more information. Next episode, it's diagnostics. See you next time.